I think hopefully we'll have some fun this morning. Uh, I mentioned last week, you know, we did, we uh, took a little detour to the Death Star and we took a little detour to Top Gun and, and today we'll have a few minor detours as well. We're going to take a detour to a World War II superhero, so hopefully that, you have to stick with me until we get there. But the other thing is we'll probably go back to Top Gun. I happen to like, you know, fighter airplanes and stuff, so I may wander my way back there as well. Uh, and we might, if we have time, take a glimpse at the great flood in Noah's day as it applies to this section of First Peter. Uh, but I wanted to start out because we've had sort of a, an interesting summer in the Butler household, and I wanted to at least tell you a little bit about it, how it sort of applies to this passage that we're in. Um, it started out with our plans to travel to Europe with our son, Andrew, 17. He's going to be a senior at uh, Nixa High School. And he was invited to play uh, with his club soccer team against some European teams. Uh, this is a sort of a once-in-a-lifetime type of trip. So we're all excited. He's excited. Plane tickets are purchased. Everything's ready. Chris is stoked. We're planning to go to Italy, Spain, France, maybe a little side trip over to Switzerland. There's a little bit of a whirlwind tour. But uh, it was just an incredible thing. We were building up for it. Um, but it just so happened that a week before the trip, Andrew goes down in practice uh, with a pretty serious knee injury. And if you know Andrew playing soccer, he's played soccer for years, and he's always been a pretty reliable physically. He, never, he doesn't have any major injuries. So I was like, he's a pretty, pretty reliable player out there. Anyway, this time it's a little different. They go in and in the subsequent examinations, they get him in pretty quick because it was the week before this trip. And they're like, oh yeah, we need to go figure out what's going on, see what we need to do. So they got him into an MRI pretty rapidly. They determined that he had torn his MCL, he had an acute full tear of the ACL, and he had a relatively severe tear of the meniscus. So his knee was pretty much destroyed. And they said, there's definitely no way you're playing soccer anytime soon. And of course, we're asking, well, what about a possible trip to Europe? And they're like, they're like, they're like they're, we talked to two different doctors, like, I don't think getting on and off planes and on and off buses and up and down stairs in hotels is such a great idea. Not to mention the fact if you're on the other side of the planet almost and you have a problem, they, they just, they weren't a big fan. So nonetheless, our plans to go to Europe, our plans to watch Andrew play soccer, plans to go see these other countries, uh, and even our plans to watch him play his senior season at Nick's High School sort of quickly took a radical trajectory change. Um, two days ago, he underwent surgery, and that actually went fairly well. So praise the Lord, he's doing okay, he's at home recovering. Uh, but I watched him there last night, he had his phone, I was like, what are you, what are you watching? He goes, oh, I got this group me thing, I'm hearing about the Nick's team scrimmage that they just played against Glendale, and how they won 1-0, and, and he's reading about how, what happened in Europe and how the team is. It's sort of, like, sort of a, a bummer, but nonetheless, you know, he's, he's moving on. He actually, in some regards, has a better perspective than Chris and I. We're always like, we're, we have this real negative view. He's like, oh, it'll be okay. I'll be fine. I'll be back out there one day. But sometimes in life, we face pain and suffering, uh, very much so even in our physical bodies, Sometimes suffering that we were not expecting. Sometimes it's a radical trajectory shift that we did not expect at all. Imagine for yourself someone like Joseph. Grew up, nice family, living in Canaan. One day, 
uprooted out of there, sold into slavery, off to Egypt. He goes, complete trajectory change for him. Uh, and yet we know as believers that God is sovereign over these things. He's on his throne. And as believers, those who love the Lord, those who are called according to his purpose, that God truly has a plan and can work it out for good. Just like Joseph said in the end, when he finally saw his brothers at the end and revealed, said, God, you meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. So last week, though, we embarked on studying this uh, fourth chapter of First Peter. I've sort of picked up the baton that Kevin left. I'm just running with it. Uh, but we saw it's a fairly weighty section of Scripture in that it is focused on a call for believers to arm themselves with the same purpose and mind uh, as Christ had when he was willing to suffer and die and physically die even in the flesh. Um, and you know, you look at this and we talked about the terms, uh, this arming term, this Greek almost military term of putting on or taking up weapons, putting on armor or taking up weapons. It's a serious call that Peter is making. And, when, and of course, it's in all in the light of Christ and what he did for us. And, and you'd say, well, why did Christ do what he did? Uh, I guess I could give you a simple answer. We looked at it a little last week. But one simple answer is that he was laser-focused on following his Father's will and command to come to this earth and to die for mankind, for you and for me. And this mindset that was armed and ready and focused on the will of his father, uh, that even had, to, had the mindset that this will involve suffering, this will involve, involve having to take the wrath of God and dying for us. We saw, though, that it achieved two awesome things. One is, Peter says in 3.18 of 1 Peter, that it brings us to God the Father. It's, it saves us by removing that barrier between us and the Father of sin and allows us to have access and go into the Father. So he says that in 3.18 of 1 Peter. The other second thing, that it, awesome thing that it accomplished is it brought unimaginable glory and honor to Christ Jesus as the Father bestowed upon him a name above all names and exalted him above all and put him over all, as it says in 1 Peter 3.22, as a result, mind you, of his willingness to follow through and have this mind and, and follow the will of the Father. So two awesome results. And Peter says for us it, well, for them in 64 AD, and I'm going to bring it even to today in 2022, this should be our aim as well. Living our lives laser focused on the will of our God and Father, even if it means the possibility of suffering in this world. And I believe Peter was preparing those readers in 6480 for a time of persecution, a time of malignment, a time of insult from the world. And, and I don't know what the future holds for us. I talked to you about that last week. But I do believe we face a type of persecution, an intellectual persecution that we face right here in this country. Are we armed and ready for that kind of persecution? We should be. Second, we can face spiritual persecution. We could be the target of something like Job underwent, where the evil one comes and wants to just attack one of the saints because of their attachment to the Lord's name. We can read about it in the scripture, and therefore we see a call to be armed and ready. 
We also know that the, the very real physical suffering of believers, it may happen elsewhere on this planet, and we don't know what tomorrow holds for us right here in the United States of America. So Peter's wanting to draw this out. Give us good perspectives. Give us an attitude of arming ourselves. So let's stand and read this section again as we launch into it and finish up this opening section. There was a verse that we didn't conclude or didn't cover very well, so I want to cover that and then move on. So 1 Peter 4, 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Lord, we come before you as we open your word. We just ask that you'll give us open ears to hear it, open hearts to receive it, that you'll use it to impact us. Lord, I I look at you as the consummate master teacher, the teacher of all teachers. You you want us to know more about you. You want us to draw near to you. You want us to renew our minds and and live a life that is transformed uh, by knowing you and testing and finding out what your will is, as Paul said in Romans 12 too. We just pray today that you will use your word to impact us this day, that it would not go in one ear and out the other, but it would take deep root and that we would be spurred on as Peter wants us to be armed and ready for the calls that you have for us, no matter what lies ahead. We ask that you'll do these things now in Jesus' great name. Amen. You may be seated. So Peter makes the point to his recipients that they had already had ample time to pursue these lusts of men or the lusts of the Gentiles. We looked a little bit at that last time, and he's, now he's calling them to not go back to that. You need to move on and now live your lives on this earth in pursuit of following the Father's will. And when they do this, Peter says, they'll encounter a negative response from the world. When you walk this way, they, the world will respond. He says, in all this, they are surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. That same mindset of just running wildly into things that are not godly, they're not right. And as a result of the believer not choosing to go down that lustful road of the world and the devil, they, they, the world then turns around and maligns the believer for doing that. And then he says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This idea, though, that when we stand up, take a stand for righteousness, 
we'll encounter friction. We will encounter judgment from mankind. When we stand up and say, Jesus is the way, the only truth, and the only life, and the only way to the Father, you generally come, the world comes with a pretty negative reaction to that kind of exclusive one-way road. And we will encounter the judgment of man. When we don't take part in the world and all of its lusts and sensuality and immorality, we will encounter their insults, their malignment. They will judge, ah, oh, that guy. And they will cast their, hurl their insults and judgments and possibly even persecute us physically. Uh, but Peter says those that malign the believer, those that judge the believer in that way, they will be judged by the judge. The one that's ready to, to judge both the living and the dead. This view of all will fall under his judgment. And then in verse 6, he gives his readers a glimpse of something that I believe that's in store. A bigger picture. For he says, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. We got to this verse last week. I promised that we would take a little bit of time looking at it. Uh, yesterday, I was sort of going through things. I said, does anybody remember me saying that promise? I was hoping maybe they would forget. That way we just sort of skip over it. My, but my wife and my daughter said, yeah, I do remember that verse. And I'm interested to know what you think it means because it's a weird verse. <laughs> and it does have some interesting connotations about it. And it has actually resulted in quite a various you know, degree of different thoughts as to what is Peter getting at. And I want us to try to answer this. I actually think there's one, at least if this is just my opinion, but I think there's one interpretation here that really shines within the context and fits the, the way he worded it. But I want to at least let you know. There are at least three good views. One I think isn't so good. Two that are decent. The first one is that what does Peter mean by the gospel for this purpose has been preached even to those who are dead? Well, the gospel is preached to people that have already died, thus giving them a second chance to believe. That's one view. I personally don't believe that that's what he's trying to get across. I think there's problems with that for a few reasons. One, we'll look at this in a second, but the tenses of these Greek verbs are all, most all of them but one are past tense Aorist tense is not some ongoing, continuing thing about he keeps giving these second chances to those who are going to die in the future, then they'll have another chance and that. And then it doesn't really fit very well with Scripture in the sense that Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. So the equation the writer of Hebrews and other areas of Scripture is you die physically on this earth, then you will face the judgment. That's the general view. Uh, and then the third thing I don't like about this, this, this take on this verse is it really doesn't fit very well with the context of what he's trying to get at, this idea of suffering and standing firm even in the light of facing the world's judgment around us. The second view is that, okay, the gospel is preached to those that are spiritually dead. See, that's what, that's what Peter means. He's saying the gospel is preached to those that are spiritually dead and thus brings them to spiritual life. This isn't a bad view in the sense that that is a very true reality in the scriptures. 
that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. So we were spiritually dead, but God can make us alive together with him, right? Through the saving work of Christ. So that does fit uh, the rest of scripture. I don't know if it really fits quite as well with the context. So then there's a third interpretation, which is, well, what Peter's trying to convey is this, that the gospel was preached to those that believed prior to Peter's letter, and then they died. And now, he's talking about right now to these 64 AD believers, those that have, been, have gone before them, they are spiritually alive with Christ. And I think the, the wording here and the construction in the Greek fits fairly well with this view. But I also think even more importantly, when you dive into it, it actually amazingly fits well with the context. And so I want us to look at this uh, with some level of detail. Now, I'm about to do something that I normally wouldn't do in a sermon. You might find this a little boring. Maybe it's a little too academic, but I'm going to do it anyway because half the problem with this verse is that you read the English and you there's a lot of different translations. If you look at NIV, it's different than NASB. It's different than King James. It's different than ESV. And you're like, well, where am I to go with all this? And so I say every time I get to that kind of verse, I say, well, what is, it, what is the Greek? What is the literal Greek words? Can I glean something from the Greek words just in the most literal sense? What we find is sort of interesting. And we find that certain words as you look at it in the different translations, you don't even find them at different translations. So I want to actually take and dive into this verse fairly quickly here. So the literal construction here of this, this is every Greek word in verse 6, and this is how it forms in order. To this end, indeed, even to dead, gospel preached, aorist tense, past completed verb and action, so that judged, aorist tense, past completed, indeed they're judged according to men in flesh, might live, present tense, however, according to God in spirit. So when we look at this, I just want to make a few notes about this. First, I've already sort of hinted at this, the verb for preaching is past Aorist tense, meaning this is not something that's continuing to go on with com continuing action. It was preached in the past. And it's done. And then you note the second big verb, the judged, according to man, this judged word, that's also in the past, aorist tense. So those that Peter is referring to were, were judged in the past, according to men. And note who or what they were judged according to, kata anthropos. According to man, they were judged. Uh, and note the connection then. Uh, well, actually, before I go to the connection, note in regards to this judgment of man, what does he say is impacted? The flesh that's been a subject in this whole section. Their physical flesh, not their sinful flesh, but their physical life on this earth is impacted. Then he throws in a connecting participle. Up here, as shown here, as however. This Greek word D, that really in the new NASB, they don't really fully translate it. Uh, this is a word to say, could be translated but, or moreover, or nevertheless, or yet. Uh, and so it's sort of this contrast 
between the first half of the sentence and the second half. And notice what the second half says. Notice what or who those that had died before are now judged according to. Katatheon. They're judged according to God. So you got kata man, judged according to man, in the flesh, judged according to God over here. And he puts a however, or never a, a but, sort of separating these, contrasting these two. And then note the one present tense verb, which is right now as a result of them being judged according to God. They can now live present tense in the spirit. And you might be wondering, well, Joel, why are we going into all this detail? You know, I, it's, I, you know, I don't know it, where you're going with this, but I believe this is one of Peter's key arguments here, one of his key cases. He's just, think of it this way, he's just asked them to arm themselves with a mind and purpose of Christ. He's asked them to willingly suffer in their physical bodies. He's asked them to fix their goal to do the Father's will. And he said, don't go after the lusts of the world anymore. And also understand that the world and mankind around them will effectively be judged, will, sorry, will effectively judge them for part, not partaking. They, you will face a, a response from the world and that will be malignment. They will judge you for not joining them. And then now he's making this case that those that have heard and believed the gospel in the past, even though man has passed their judgment on them, even though man, they may have suffered in the flesh at the hands of man, even though they have died possibly physically death in this world at the hands of man, but now, according to God, katatheon, they are now alive in the spirit right now. He's saying present tense. In other words, I believe Peter is bringing up the subject of the dead in Christ. Saying, he's saying, these dead in Christ demonstrate the effectiveness of the gospel to result in spiritual life despite man's judgment upon the believer. Despite man's malignments and insults and persecutions and attacks against the believer. Thus, he says, be ready and armed to face the suffering and judgment of man, knowing that your life of belief and dedication to God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, will result in eternal life, just like those that have gone before you. And that is what I believe he's trying to convey in this sixth verse, as challenging as it is. I think he's putting before them two possible judgments. One, according to man, They'll condemn you for it. You'll face hardship for this type of life. But according to God, when you hold on to the gospel, you will see everlasting life. And it's similar to what he made, the point he made back in chapter 3.13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And get this, do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. Don't be bothered by that. You'll face it, but don't be overwhelmed by that. Keep your eyes ahead. And we know that the dead in Christ have a great position with the Lord, which is what I believe he's alluding to in verse 6. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, we get this view 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if we believe that, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That's the view of the New Testament believer who has fallen asleep in Jesus and is alive in the Spirit, is in his presence, and one day will return with him. So you see, as we look at these first six verses, Peter has made quite an argument, quite a case to, to tell us and those believers in the first century to be armed, to be ready with the same mind and purpose of our Lord and Savior, to have this laser focus on following the Father's will, even if it means suffering and persecution. And remember, I pointed this out, I'll say it again, we don't know what, what tomorrow holds, but we do know that today we might face the intellectual persecution, spiritual persecution, or ab- perhaps physical persecution in the years to come. But as he's made all these cases, the question may come up in your mind as you're reading. I always like to ask questions as I read. I sometimes just type my notes. Just I, I like to ask questions, but I wonder why he put that there. Why did he record this? What does this verse mean? Uh, you know, in this case, I say, how? How do you arm yourself? How do you live this out? Are there any encouragements or practical items that help encourage a believer to take up this position of being armed, to being ready, to walking this life out? And I believe his next little section, his next section of verses is exactly that kind of section of and statements for us to hold on to. So I'm going to read them. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's an an awesome little conclusion here to this first half of chapter four. And when you zoom out and you look at, I just point out two sort of high level items that I think should encourage us and equip us and be the the sort of the how do we get this job done. The two items is the first thing he states is understand and live with a perspective that the end is near. We could call this the eternal perspective. You need to have the right perspective. If you don't, Peter's saying, get get that, get your head right on that. Number two, he points out at a high level that we need to love and serve one another during this stay uh, on this earth using our God-given gifts. And we'll look at more of that next week because it's amazing to think about how serving others, how loving others within the body how living out this life of taking your spiritual gifts and helping right here, how does that help you live a life armed, ready, equipped, willing to go through hardship, willing to go through suffering, facing these sorts of things? I think there's some awesome realities 
when we peel that one back and look at that next week. But today, with our remaining time, I want to focus on item number one, which is the perspective of the end. You could ask the question, how does a perspective of the end help and encourage a one now, right now today to live armed and ready and face these challenges they may face? Well, last week we looked at William Tyndale, great translator of, the, of Greek going into English. He died for, to help us have our English Bibles. We looked at that last week. That's a great illustration of a guy having to live out 1 Peter 4. Today, I want to real quickly take a sidetrack over to a famous World War II, I could call her a superhero of the faith uh, in World War II, and that is Corey Tinboom. I'm sure you guys have read the story, maybe watched some documentaries. It's a fascinating story, and you'd say, well, how does that apply to this in-view perspective? Well, let me tell the story here, and I think maybe you'll see the connection. Corey grew up in uh, the Netherlands. Her dad was a watchmaker. She grew up in a fairly strong reformed house. They, 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 they read the scriptures daily. They followed the Lord. They, they really, they, they, they had a dedication to his word and his truth. Uh, and they were doing well. I mean, the Lord had blessed their, their, their shop, their watchmaker. She became the first woman at the age of 22 to be uh, an actually like, licensed uh, watchmaker herself, and things were looking really pretty good up until the, the, the time when the Nazis invaded and everything in Europe, as you know, went south. Uh, now, amazingly, to their great credit, her dad or, and her family, they said, you know, we care about helping the Lord's people who are being persecuted, the Israelites, the Jews of the day. And so they took their shop and that back little raised area back there they realized, you know, we, we, could, we could build a little safe room back up in there and, and hide it so that if the Nazis come knocking, we could hide some of these Jewish folks up there so that they don't get captured. And that's exactly what they did. They even had buzzers and bells throughout the house so that if, they, if the Nazis came knocking at this front door, they could quickly alert the whole house and say, get, get, get the Jews that they were trying to hide up into this little, little room. They had a trap door. They would go in. It was in a and behind sort of this shelving system, they would come down, you would, you would never know that there was a room on the other side of this wall. And so that's how they, that they helped these people. And they, they really put their lives on the line to do so. Uh, and then it so happened, though, that one day, um, and I, I take this as being the sovereign, still the Lord's sovereign over this event, they, they, a guy sort of ratted them out that they were hiding Jews and helping them out. So the Nazis came a knocking one day, and they rushed the house. Uh, of course, they hit the buzzers. Actually, amazingly, their systems worked. The Jews that were, they were hiding were safe. But unfortunately, Corey, her sister Betsy, her dad, and her brother, they weren't so safe. They were taken off to Nazi prison camps. Her dad died within a matter of days. Uh, her brother died shortly thereafter, too. But her and her sister were taken off to a, a prison camp for women in World War II there uh, outside her area where she grew up. And it was, what ensued was a, uh, was a fairly lengthy period of time of serious persecution of these people, mistreated, killed, raped, abused, mocked, stripped, 
all kinds of things that are really horrific to read about and hear the stories. But, but nonetheless, Corey was actually amazingly able, through praying to the Lord, was able to smug, smuggle a Bible in with her. And so she would have daily Bible studies inside this room of 700 women that was really only designed for about 150 to 200 and it was lice infested and that actually worked to their favor because then the guards wouldn't come in and know that they were having a Bible study. Anyway, it was an amazing thing as she was just continued to live a life sharing her testimony, knowing that at any day her number could be called. Any day the death toll may come her direction. Uh, and one day, you know, she's there and her sister's going, we had, had some, was getting sick and going through some battling with a disease, but her sister had a vision, had a dream, and said, Corey had this dream, and in this dream, we we were on the other side of this, and you were you were speaking to other peoples and other nations and other other tribes, and, and there was a house, and I saw that we had, and you, you were able to help other people that could come out, that were coming out of this, this uh, situation of the Holocaust, and you were able to travel and tell people about what God has done during this dark hour. And it wasn't too long after that that her sister died, but that end view, that this, this view that there could be an end to this, that God has gave her just a glimpse that there's something around the corner here that's going to happen, gave Corey something to hold on to. And then her number was called one day. And as most days when they called the number, that means it's time for you to go die at the hands of the Nazis. She walked in, they took her number, they took her papers, they sat her down, they said, they gave, her all, they gave all of her other papers back to her and said, you're free to go. She leaves the facility with nothing, nothing with her hardly, leaves the facility walking bare feet down the road. She came to find out, you know, in the years after, that only two weeks after she was released, all the women of her age were killed two weeks. And then she found out that it was really a, an accident that she was released, which I don't think that was an accident. I think the Lord's hand was at work. And then what was amazing, and this is what I was going to get to, is she lived out and got to see that vision that her sister had came to full fruition. She did have, they ended up with this nice house that was given to them to help those coming out of the Holocaust. She did end up traveling the world and telling all the peoples, and she came to this country, traveled our country, and told people, maybe your parents and grandparents and others that have walked this earth in this country, they got to hear from her about what had happened and what the Lord did. So that in view that he, the Lord gave, that glimmer of hope came to reality. If we know there's an end coming, then we can better endure the trials that we're in now. For Andrew, right now at home, there's light at the end of his immediate tunnel because he's hoping that everything heals up and he's back at it here come this winter, right? He's holding on to that. He's looking for, in fact, like I said, Chris and I are more, more down on it. He's like, oh, I'll be out there, you know, but he's looking forward to that. I know there are people in this room that are going through struggles. You're facing trials. You're facing tribulations, things that are going on in your life, and you have to have this attitude. To know, as Peter said, the end of all things is near. That has a way of changing the way you live through the struggle. But 
my question for us today is, how far-reaching is your perspective here? How far-reaching is, is Peter reaching out with this statement? It's not exactly clear in verse 7 how far Peter is trying to reach, but most conservative scholars believe that he is actually reaching to the end end. If you look at his word construction, the end of all things is at hand. And I do think as you zoom out of this whole First Peter book, and we would be remiss if we never zoom back out and see something that's very clear. And that is Peter constantly had a big picture view of a future, a future glorification of the believer, a future return of Christ, a future full revelation of Christ, and a future judgment that the Lord would bring. If we were to do that rapidly here, I'll just want to, so you can see it, go all the way back to 1 Peter 1.4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. He has a view of the believer having something reserved in heaven. 1.5, the next verse, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This view that there will be a revealing of this salvation and this resulting glorification of the believer. In one seven, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, get this, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The apocalypsis, this idea that's what the book of Revelation is about. He just said the exact same word. He believed there would be a future full revelation of Jesus Christ. What about 2.12? Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter believed there is a future day when the Lord will visit the earth again. Here we are in 4.7, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment, sober spirit, for the purpose of prayer. 4.13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with ex exaltation. Again, the same apocalypsis word, the revelation of his glory. 5.1, therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, a future glory that Peter constantly has in view. 5.4, again still speaking to the elders, and when the chief shepherd appears, that's Christ, he will appear, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And if we were to go on into the second book, he writes a whole chapter about his eschatology views about the new heaven and the new earth and the elements burning away. And a thousand years is like one day to the Lord and don't listen to the mockers. And we'll look at one of those verses later. But Peter has thoroughly sprinkled this letter in 64 AD 
with the constant reminder that there is a future return of Christ, a future glorification of the believer. And in 4.7, his statement is one of nearness. He's saying it's near. That's the perspective you need to have when you're walking on this earth. It is near. The end is coming quickly. And I would argue that Peter's not alone in the New Testament with this view that the end is imminent. The end is near. James 5.8, he says, You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. The exact same word there at the end of that verse that Peter used. Hebrews 10.17, For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Revelation 22.12, Jesus' words himself. Catch this one. Behold, behold. That means pay attention. Turn your eyes and listen to this one. I am coming quickly, he says, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Clearly, the New Testament view is of the Lord's return and the glorification of the believer is one of nearness. And that is even to all these writings in the first century. The first century, mind you. Here we are 2,000 years later. Say, well, did they have it all wrong? Oh, they were just all wrong. It wasn't that near. They, you don't want to live life thinking it's near. No, I don't think that's the case. It's always the case that the believer should live his life believing that the Lord's return is imminent and near at hand. And that's why they, they made these statements. And in verse 7, he said, this perspective of the end being near should motivate us to live with sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Sound judgment, a Greek word meaning a clear mind. Sober is a word that conveys alertness and the idea of being free from any influence that would dull the mind or the senses. You need to have a clear mind. No wine, strong drink to cloud that. And this clear mind, this alertness that Peter says we should have should be directed as a result of the end is near principle or perspective to then be people on our knees in prayer. That's what he's calling these people to say. How do you walk this life armed and ready? Focus it, look to the end and be ready to pray. We'll talk more next time about this idea of how it suffices that we were moved by this in perspective to, and it should move us to prayer. But I want us to zoom back out for just a second as we close out here and think about two things. Peter has given us two fairly large calls in this section. One is have a mind armed and ready for suffering. That's verses one through six. He likens that to Christ willing to suffer. The second call is, he says, endure this time on the earth by having a perspective of the end in verse four, verse seven, chapter 4, verse 7. This too is similar to Christ. If you recall, who for the joy set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross and now has been eternally glorified in heaven according to Hebrews 12 too. He had a view to the end of what, it, what, what, it, what the goal was. It was an eternal goal. So we have these two calls, two major calls, but what I find sort of intriguing and maybe the most alarming for me here to preach this or to share this with you 
I find that both of these two principles or perspectives are oftentimes minimized or ignored mainly in the, in the church in America. You'd say, well, what do I mean by that? Well, let's stop and think about it. First, the call to be armed and ready for suffering as Christ did. We look at that and we say, well, you know, I get that other people are suffering elsewhere. I've never once in my life had to face the sufferings like Christ has faced. It's, I don't really need to heed what he's after with this whole idea of arming oneself. And so, we, you know, we're, we haven't been facing the classic physical suffering right here at Christ Community Church. And so we sort of lower our readiness. I, you know, I've heard these sermons about persecution before. I don't need to be ready. The second, think about the second call. Living with a perspective of the end. Well, we tend to avoid end-time prophecies in, in the church in the United States. Fewer and fewer churches want to even teach the subject matter of end times. We, why? Well, we view it as divisive. It's confusing. We can't really know the answers when we read these things. So we just sort of ignore that. We don't want to go there. And then unfortunately, sometimes, I hate to say it, we might even fall into the very trap that the mockers are going to say when we begin to think, oh, you know, his coming, it's still a long ways out. I've got time. We have time. There's no imminence in his return. We have plenty of time. And so we tend to sort of minimize both of Peter's key calls. But my hope and prayer for us right here today at Christ Community Church is that we don't take those roads, that we heed these calls from Peter and the rest of Scripture because I think they have huge import for us. First, think of it this way. If we live with these two perspectives in mind, I believe we'll focus on him more, his will, his plan, his glory, and his kingdom, rather than our, on our circumstances or the world around us. Much like Paul. Well, though he's in chains in the Philippians, you know, when he writes to the Philippians, he's in chains, he's able to be at joy and say, I got it. The Lord's got this. Even in my imprisonment, the gospel's going forth. He wasn't bothered by his circumstances. Or Christ himself had this view. Because he said, I know, this is Christ speaking, that his commandment is eternal life. Speaking of the Father's command. The Father's command is eternal life. Therefore, I speak the things I speak. I speak just as the Father has told me. So his view is following the Lord's will. The Father's will, because he knows there's eternity involved in this, eternal life. Second, if we live with these perspectives, we will, we will worry less. Our anxiety is lowered. We will think less about our physical bodies, more about our glorified bodies. Less about the circumstances and the trials we face, and more about the Lord's work and our future with him. The third thing, I believe, if we actually take up these two perspectives... Peter's called, is we won't be surprised or miss things. And I'm going to give you something here that's a little scary. But the warnings for a church that doesn't have the correct view of their spiritual health and, the Lord, and have a good view of the Lord's return, it's deadly, according to Christ. Because in the book of Revelation, if you recall, Jesus is seen walking amongst the lampstands. The lampstands representing 
the church in its wholeness, seven of them in full measure, holding up the light of the truth. There's also the seven stars, the angels, messengers sent to each of the seven churches. And then Jesus proceeds to write and address each of the seven churches. And I believe there's a call here for all the churches to listen in to what he's saying. There are truths as he begins to talk to churches that he cuts deep. Some of them are, he doesn't have much of condemnation, but some of them he really cuts pretty hard. And one in particular stands out, especially in light of what Peter is saying. To the angel of the church of Sardis, write this. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the seven messengers to the church, churches, says this. I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. That's a change of of mind word. Therefore, if you do not wake up, get this, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. He closes out this letter, says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Implications are a little scary there. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He, get this, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you get this? This church thought they had it all together. They thought they were alive. They thought they were alive in Christ and rocking and rolling. And he says, you're not. You're dead. And you need to wake up. Go back to the things you've heard. Go back to these admonitions, things like Peter's writing. And what thing does he draw out as a thing that they may miss? This is where it gets extra scary. If you don't do what I'm telling you to do, you're going to miss me coming. You won't even be awake You'll be asleep at the wheel and I'm going to come like a thief. That's a bit scary for a church to realize that we could become, and I'm not saying we are right here, but I'm, I'm saying it's a warning that if you don't heed these things, that the end is near and I live with that perspective, you may miss something, something big that he says like in Matthew 24, 43, Jesus says, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. My friends, I believe we're getting closer and closer with each passing day to his return. We don't want to miss the signs of his return. We don't want to ultimately ignore what he calls us to do and be ready. We don't want to fall into the trap that just like Peter was going to say in his next book, that the end time mockers will say, they'll say this, know this, that first of all, then in the last day, mockers will come with their mocking in the last times and following after their own, their own lust. And this is what they will say. Where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. You get this? The whole argument of the mockers is, we don't need to be worried about his return. 
Go back and look at your history books. I know you've been talking about it for a long time. It's not going to happen. Every generation says he's about to return. We don't need to worry about That's what the mockers will say. I don't want to be in the camp of those guys. I want to be in the camp that says, no, he will return. Even if a thousand years it to him is like a day. And right now it's a time of grace and patience. But one day, mark my words, he will return. And we need to live with that nearness in mind. And the last thing I'll say is if we live with these two perspectives, we will be well prepared and ready for whatever lies ahead. For those that actually did see Top Gun the movie, they prepared these pilots. They got them ready for the mission. One of their preparations for the mission was to throw a curveball into their training. Throughout, two of them are training side-by-side F-18s. They've got roles, tasks they're having to follow. All of a sudden, a bandit shows up. Maverick shows up as an unknown bandit. Why? Because it's good to be ready for the curveball. You may think you got your eschatology down. You may think you got all the prophetic stuff down. You got your timetable built. You think, well, the church will be gone before we have to face the tribulation. Maybe, but I'm here to tell you that that's a subject of great debate. You can read passages like Matthew 24, 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. And on the fifth seal, Revelation 6, 9, the lamb broke the fifth seal. He saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Now, I don't believe the church is destined for wrath. I believe the church will be removed ultimately before the wrath of the Lord falls. But I can't say with 100% certainty that I've got everything figured out as to say that there's no way that we'll ever have any persecution because the Bible certainly talks about persecution of believers that stand firm for the word. And so I don't want to be thrown a curveball and not be ready and have a, uh-oh, I wasn't ready. I didn't heed what Peter said. I want to be a person who heeds what Peter says, to be armed and ready. I want us all to be like that. Think of Noah as I close. I know I'm a little over. Think of Noah. He's like us, just told judgment will one day be coming. We, we can read that in our day. We know that's coming. Get ready. Be ready. Sounds a lot like what Peter was saying. Arm yourself. Start building this thing. Start getting ready, taking, making provisions. He starts working. How many years does it go by as he's got to work with this attitude of mindset that this judgment's coming? Judgment's coming. It's near. It's going to happen one day. He has to walk 50, 80 years, something, maybe even as many as 120 years building this ark. It's a little bit debated, but either way, he worked on that ark, lived with the perspective of being ready for as long as some of us may live on the earth. That's how long he held on to the attitude of being ready. So as I close, I want to ask you some key closing questions. What is the harm if we were to take up Peter's call? What is the harm in living with a, with a mind armed and focused on doing the will of the Father, ready for suffering and need be? What is the harm in living with the New Testament perspective of the nearness of Christ's return and the nearness of the end of the age? 
Even if he was to tarry, I'd rather be, us be people who are known for studying our scriptures, known to take the prophecies and read them, knowing what they said and preparing our families, our homes, and this church for what lies ahead. I was talking to my brother about this. And he said, look, Joel, if I die at 80 and he's never returned, you can say when you're standing there that Pat always thought the Lord would return and he, was, he didn't. But he said, I'd a lot rather be in that category than the other side around, which is, I wasn't ready. I never lived like he was ready. And I was like the lazy slave that Jesus talked about in his parable that didn't, didn't worry about his return. My friends, he's coming back. Peter had the view of it. And here he brings us into focus. He says, the end of all things is at hand. So buckle up, be armed and ready, stand firm, Walk through whatever the Lord puts before you, whether it's suffering or not. Follow his will and you will shine in so doing. Daniel said as he closes out in his book, Daniel 12, an incredible prophecy about the very end of all things. He says, go your way, Daniel, for these words will be kept secret and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, cleansed, and refined but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But get this, those who have insight will understand. Those who have insight will understand. May we at CCC be like those that diligently prepare, arm ourselves, study, focus on his word, live with confidence, and thus have insight as we see the day drawing near.